we are um, we're going to do two two topics um, back to back, and I'm going to give a, a break in the middle. But they're going to be starting with lay counseling and discipleship, and then moving to leadership. So you want to um, you want to start with this um, purple, <laughs> lavender, pink, lavender. Um, handout. Um, the way I'm going to operate with this, um, so it's going to say introduction to lay counseling and discipleship. There is a deeper purple in there that I think is another topic. Um, yeah, but, but lay counseling and discipleship. Um, I am not going to have my notes on the screen. I'm going to have some, um, I think, helpful, hopefully helpful images that I'm going to refer to. But the handout is going to be what we're going to go through, so I'll refer to that. The other thing is um, the way that uh, this time is going to go is uh, view it like a, a drive-by um, of a lot of the resources that are on the website. So I don't know how many um, handouts that I have put under this section, um, but maybe about six or seven, 11. Uh, under under this section, okay. Somebody's adding to my section. <laughs> Let's see what I can add to your section. No. <laughs> um, so uh, maybe aside from that, this is going to be an overview of those sections, and so you're going to get a, a sampling of this. Um, but go back to those as, to get the deeper resources that I think will, um, will provide you um, some of the training that we're really after here. This is, um, you know, there was, there's a real intentionality to the topic introduction to spiritual leadership. Um, if you leave here feeling like you are fully trained to be a spiritual leader, uh, you are not. <laughs> um, but it is an introduction to it. And it's helpful for you to start to begin to uh, figure out what your toolbox will look like. Um, you're going to feel the call. Hopefully you're already feeling the call to leadership. That's why you're here. Um, but these are resources that you can draw upon as you're, um, you're going to be used by God in this. So we're going to start with the, this uh, handout, Introduction to Lay Counseling and Discipleship. And I want to begin by that concept of including both of these things together. Um, and I do that um, partly because there's a little bit of ambigu ambiguity about where one stops and one leans off, you know. So you could think of that as a Venn diagram, right? You know, there's, there's clearly overlap. There's clearly some things that are counseling. There are clearly some things that are discipleship. And quite frankly, we are more and more as a society defining things as counseling issues and going to specialists for these issues. Now, I'm not going to slam that. There's a lot of uh, common grace wisdom that we can learn about how behavior and the uh, behavior tendencies and how the mind works. Um, and there's certainly a whole area of biology that, um, that we need to uh, account for and understand. 
But increasingly, this has been areas where the church, that the people have moved away from talking to the church about and more to other kinds of specialists. Um, segmenting out counseling and, and taking all these issues that, uh, that are counseling issues and moving them away from discipleship um, and into a specialized thing that the church shouldn't touch. And um, I do want to try to swing the, the other side of the balance there. So what you're, what you're not hearing me say is discounting secular counseling or secular um, psychology completely, but I do think we have overstressed um, some of that. In line with that, your calling as a leader has a spiritual component to it, um, where you not are simply uh, not simply called to connect people to resources, but are to bring the gospel to bear in their lives. Um, so I want to think about that challenge. Thinking about this topic, um, how do you define discipleship? How do you define counseling? Um, one might say discipleship is more proactive and counseling is more reactive. But certainly a, counsel, a discipler should be uh, reactive to things, and certainly um, counseling should be proactive. Counseling tends to be issue-focused and occasional, where discipleship tends to be holistic and indefinite. You get into a, a discipling relationship with somebody, and you don't necessarily see I'm going to work on one particular issue um, for a particular time, although you could certainly have a discipleship relationship like that. Um, but what we're going to go through here are specific tools that will help you in lay counseling and discipleship, um, and especially at some points it's going to feel more like counseling issues. At some points it's going to seem more like discipleship, but I think all are the calling of a, of a Christian spiritual leader. Um, so this is stuff that um, you need to, um, to see as your calling, which moves to that next section, A, life on life, how and where does counseling and discipleship happen? Where would you say it happens? Where does counseling and discipleship happen? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to start bringing in some of the language we've we're starting to work with. Um, community, temple, presence. Where else? Some of the situations where counseling or discipleship happens. Small groups, certainly. Could happen in larger group settings. It happens right here. It happens on a Sunday morning. You know, there are all, all sorts of areas where this happens. Um, do you see yourself in this role? Now, I've already started out saying I think you should, but do you actually see yourself in this role? I think many times we see ourselves as a conduit, getting people to the specialist. Okay, well, you're going through a trouble. I'm going to get you connected to the pastor. Now, there, there are times when that has to happen. But do you see yourself merely as a conduit? Oh, you know, you really need to read this book. You need to take this re resource. Um, or do you see yourself as an instrument, a real instrument, um, scripture is filled with many examples of life-on-life -life discipleship. This idea where we're um, more than just leading, hurting people to resources, but intentionally 
um, being in Christian relationships, applying God to people's lives. From what we've talked about theologically, what category is that fitting into? Life on life. Yeah, communal, right? And, and getting even more, you almost want to call it sacramental. The presence of Christ that is in you working on and in somebody else's life, bringing help and bringing change. If we were to simply call yourself a conduit, so you having a hurting person, um, getting them to resources, how does that change your role? And how does that change your relationship? I mean, many ways, but what are some of the downsides to just acting as a conduit? Well, yeah, anybody want to jog into that one? Yeah, Yeah, okay, you can be distant from that. Right, exactly. You can be distant. Yeah. I think oftentimes you're going to feel like you're loving them better, but it is going to be distant. And when I say you feel like you're going to be loving each other better, because I think most of us are convinced that we've got nothing to give. How does that, our theology should start to inform this, but many times we feel like we have nothing to give. Faith? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. When we talked about this last night, about the Christ's presence working through the body, jointly and severally, and sometimes what, what we said last night was, sometimes it's a matter of just showing up. What happens when you're just pointing to people to resources um, you, you don't let God work through you, and you don't realize God can work through you. Look, I, I hope this is all getting qualified with everything else we've talked about with ordained ministry and roles that pastors serve, but I think we so devalue uh, what God is doing in our lives that we pull back from getting into um, discipleship issues, getting in life-on-life issues um, for fear that we don't have anything to bring. And what I'm going to say is, No, God calls all of us to this. This quote by Randy Pope here as he's talking about life-on-life discipleship says it well. Life-on-life discipleship is not curriculum on life. We believe that discipleship happens because of relationships, not because of books or material. There is something organic that takes place in discipleship, even as one works through engineered content. Although there is a learning component to discipleship, the focus is on living and sharing truth not merely learning it. There is uh, something really uh, incredible about pouring your life into somebody else um, that shows your life and um, walks through them in the midst of their struggles um, and their difficulties. Uh, There is a handout in that resource on the website called Life on Life um, Discipleship. Uh, There you'll you'll see some of the more sacramental elements, what we've been calling sacramental theology. But um, in that handout, there's a great quote from Martin Luther. It says, Now this is the fruit, that even as we have eaten and drunk the body and blood of Christ, the Lord, 
we in turn permit ourselves to be eaten and drunk and say the same words to our neighbor, take, eat, and drink. And this is by no means in jest, but in all seriousness, meaning to offer yourself with all your life, even as Christ did with all that he had in the sacramental words. See what a beautiful picture that is? See how empowering that is? Everybody in this room has come here to, uh, to, because in some sense you felt a call to spiritual leadership. And spiritual leaders should not, not be, be the one taking the charge of this, not least them. I mean, everybody should, should um, be involved in this. But, but there is a sense in which we ignore this um, privilege that God has given us by virtue of being Christians to get into each other's lives. Um, this doesn't have to be formal ministry. Um, I put down some venues uh, in the bullet points on page two that, that we've already mentioned here. Um, what happens when we point people to resources and act as a conduit? Sometimes we act as their friend. And in that way, we want to stay um, a support and we want to point people to resources but it also absolves us of the messy, hard, difficult, challenging things we might have to say. And that's something that I think um, draws us more comfortably to being the, um, the friend who is pointing to something but not the friend who comes in and challenges. Um, I want to I use two metaphors um, to describe what it means to be a spiritual leader in relationships. Um, the first is the balcony. Um, we're called to, to help people get on the balcony. Um, the metaphor comes from um, Heifetz and Linsky and Leadership on the Line. We call the skill getting off the dance floor and going on the balcony, an image that captures the mental activity of stepping back in the midst of action and asking, what's really going on here? And to do that in the midst of a situation is an extremely helpful way for, for someone who is, who is wrestling with, uh, with a particular issue or a particular sin, or even in the midst of beginning a discipleship relationship where they can just see um, the one step in front of them, um, to help them step back and say, look, you're seeing this in a way that, that is very humanistic. What, what is God's perspective on this? And what's the big picture? What is really going on here? So stepping back, Getting on the balcony, one. But also, a spiritual leader is called to be a prophet. Um, and the prophet has um, provided, not just providing the vantage point of God, but also speaking into it. Walter Brueggemann says it this way, um, as, as, describes this person as a, a poet-pastor who confronts us with the ready, steady, surprising proposal that the real world in which God invites us to live is not the one made available by the rules of this age, the preacher has an awesome opportunity to offer an, ex- an existence shaped by the news of the gospel, a voice that shatters settled reality and evokes new possibilities. You can only do that if you yourself are steeped in scripture, that you yourself are walking with God. But when you do that, you then can bring in a very life-giving new frame of, of mind to somebody who is, is um, struggling with something they may not even consider sin at the time, to come in and challenge it. 
Um, the vantage point of God allows us to adjust expectations, revise core values, challenge an adjusted standard of operating procedure or cultural norms, and step out of the fog and see the greatest war. Um, so is that, you all get those two metaphors, getting on the balcony, but then also not just describing, not just painting the picture. Um, you know, there's that great line in, I uh, can't remember the name of the movie, but the guy's struggling. He's like, uh, I'm drowning here and you're describing the water. You know, it is, there, there's a sense in which, yeah, we do need a description of what the situation is, but we also need to come in and, and apply God's truth to our lives. That's the prophetic role. Um, is that all clear? And I'm just framing this as what the task is for spiritual leaders. So I'm going to uh, frame it in those two perspectives, diagnosis and then application. So diagnosis, how do we think about these particular issues? And I want to say that all of life's issues are gospel issues. If we're just on the dance floor, what do some of these issues look like? What are some issues that you have seen in, uh, let's, let's use the nice little, in your friends' lives um, that have disrupted their life? You can stay anonymous here. What are things that disrupt life? Problems, good, okay. So um, any, any more specific than that? Okay. Yeah, and we're going to get to we're going to get to relationship, family structures. We'll we'll do some of that systems, family systems. Um, okay, you could say alcohol. Yep. Anything else? Things that you. Okay. Now you're already starting to do the prophetic role. You're starting to to bring it into biblical categories. How does that? What's the felt struggle that that is on? How does it get articulated to somebody who's in the midst of idolatry? Yeah. 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 I'm anxious. You talk to somebody and they're going to say, I'm anxious. This is the first line that they're on the, the, the dance floor. They're saying, I'm worried. Or, you know what? I'm experiencing a lot of anger right now. I'm depressed. I'm feeling just crazy guilt. I've, you know, struggling with lust. All of these issues are dance floor issues. But I want to say that at the heart of it all is the gospel. There's gospel issues. And if we, if we just talk to people on the dance floor and that level, um, what we will start to um, apply to their lives is just sort of sin management. You're stressed. You know what? Take the day off. What you need is a good nap. Or um, you're really worried about something? Relax. Yeah, that helps a lot. Just tell somebody stressed out to relax. You know, you just need to lighten up a little bit. Or you're angry. You know what? You just fight your, fight your anger. You know, push it down. <laughs> Stuff the depression, right? <laughs> Cheer up. All those things, you, you know, may even have an immediate um, uh, response that looks good. But at the core, you're never getting to the real issues of life. Every issue has a gospel issue at its heart. And as we become uh, into these spiritual leadership relationships with people, we need to be able to diagnose that. Um, There is a great passage in Hebrews when it's describing Christ. Hebrews 4.15, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's uh, lots of things we can say about this passage because it's so deep and rich. But I want one observation here is that uh, Christ, who is fully man, so don't think his divinity saved him from the temptations that he faced, fully man, and it says fully tempted by things. How did he respond? Without sin. What is that telling you about the circumstances that produce anger and lust and fear and doubt? What does it tell you about those particular circumstances? Yeah, that they're not the problem. Nicely said. You'll get that. Do you understand that? Because if Jesus, who was fully man, was fully tempted by those things and did not sin, it wasn't just the fact that his divinity saved him from those things. It was the fact that you can, one can experience what you're going through and not fall into sin. The best example that comes frequently in my life is that I'm rushing off to an appointment somewhere and I'm in traffic and I'm, you know, or, you know, just feeling very stressed out sitting there. And then I look over to the car next to me in the same traffic and they're just like, yeah, you know, listen to music and just, why are you so happy? You know, we're going through the same thing. Okay, yeah, there is a huge difference. Their heart's in a different place than my heart. I could blame the circumstances, but there are other things at work. We can talk about circumstances as we counsel somebody, but if we never get to the heart, we're in trouble. This um, image is one that is used in um, a couple of books by uh, Paul Tripp and David Pallison. Um, to walk it through, he is the situation right at the top, the sun. What's the heat uh, in an example of somebody experiencing difficult issues in their life, someone who needs your discipleship or your counsel? What's an example of heat? Traffic was, was the one that I was using. Finances. Finances, good, yeah. Debt. Illness. Health problems. People in your life who are, you know, demanding, whatever. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the situation. That is the thing that is tempting. Now, there are two sides to this. Um, the thorns is how we react. You see a number two. It, it's a reaction from what we actually believe or what we want to believe. And we take the situation, we take the heat, and we believe a certain thing about it, a certain thing that's a non-truth, a non-gospel truth, something that denies the gospel. I'm in traffic. This appointment ha- connects in some way to my self-worth, <laughs> my value as a person. It's starting to expose something I don't believe about the gospel. And in the end, it will reap thorns. You start to, you start to, um, you start to reap the consequences of that, which will be anger, anxiety, worry, 
those things get, get produced from the heat. But if your heart is, is um, solid in your understanding of the gospel, who is God? What does he say and do in Christ? Well, then that same heat is going to produce a gospel response. Sometimes that will expose sin, and that will lead us to repentance and faith. The fruit of that will be not thorns, but it will be, um, will be love. It will be the fruit of the Spirit. We'll see. Thinking through this chart will help us as we interact with people who, um, on the surface, are only presenting the heat or possibly what they're reaping. Um, we have to trace it back to the heart. Does that make sense? Any questions about that chart? I think it's extremely helpful for us and when we get to the, the idea of, of diagnosis. Um, we'll move from this to talking about the concept of idolatry, which we've already talked about. And look, it's, it's, um, it's been said so often, I think, in context, especially recently, um, that we, we forget that it's actually a biblical category. I was, in a, um, I was in a Bible study just a few years ago where the person asked, you know, we talk a lot about idolatry, but you know what? I see it in the Old Testament of these idols. Is there anything that legitimizes it in the New Testament to say that that's really there? And there are. There are lots of passages. I mean, if, I, this is a biblical category. It's not just, it's not just something um, uh, that was in foreign cultures um, but it's there, Old Testament and New. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5. Calvin makes the observation that our heart is a factory of idols. From our mother's womb, we are experts at inventing things that we worship. This is all getting down to that bottom level of who is God. Romans 1, look at verse 23. In the context of understanding the root of sin... Paul says, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, for idols of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then uh, Colossians, Paul states it um, in probably a very contemporary way by saying, therefore put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is? Idolatry. Paul's able to identify this as idolatry. This is how sin operates. It gets down to the level of what we worship. And so when we talk about spiritual counseling, when we talk about lay counseling, if we're not getting down to the level of what we worship, we're not really going to address the issues. Um, Matthew Henry, pride makes a god of self, covetousness, makes a god of money, sensuality makes a god of the belly, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted or depended on, more than God, that is, it is, we do in effect make a god of. Um, now the tricky thing about idolatry is um, we think that the things that are going to do us harm are going to come in ways that look harmful, Right? <laughs> It's very easy for us uh, when we're dealing with spiritual negatives to say, yes, don't do drugs, don't sleep around, don't, you know, all the, all the you know, the kind of vices that are, are, um, are clear in, uh, in the way we talk about sin. But idols never come in those 
confrontational, clearly negative ways. They come in subtle, attractive ways. They come always presenting a good thing, but the good thing being made an ultimate thing. Mark Driscoll says, idolatry is taking good things and making it a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. Um, So all these things are good, um, but in wrong relationship with God. Um, Again, how we talk about this in somebody's life, um, the effect of it, uh, it's helpful to expose, once we've identified what an idol is, uh, expose how it operates. So a great chart um, that's been used to identify idolatry is this one. I, I, I have these handouts in the website, but use these. These are great tools. You guys want practical, here it is. Um, and you can work this from any, any uh, angle. If you want to start with the nightmares, what do you have nightmares about? Uncertainty? Rejection? Well, it's going to show you um, where your idolatry lies. If you seek power, approval, comfort, and control, those are the kind of four main categories of idolatry. This comes from a, a Keller study. Um, or you could say how others feel about you. Maybe you're oblivious to what you really want, but you kind of see, you can pick up how others respond to you. Or maybe, and probably more often, you get the problem emotion, what you struggle with the most. If you're bored, well, you have a comfort idol which seems kind of contrary because that self-feed, it feeds itself with that. Um, but you can see how this chart um, provides a, a wonderful diagnosis. Oftentimes we can look at other people's sin and feel pretty good. Hey, I don't struggle with power, <laughs> but I got this other thing of comfort that, um, that really starts to challenge me in ways that um, my self-righteousness get checked, gets checked in check with. Uh, this is really not helpful to see, is it? <laughs> okay, um, you're, these are, are um, the, the bottom chart there is really just what we've seen, but the top is a bunch of questions that goes through in diagnosing some of these. So life, has, life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I'm loving and respected. Where life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery in my life over this area. Um, you know, they are great diagnosis questions as you're talking to somebody who's struggling with it. Again, you're, you're probably approaching it on the fruit of it. You're probably seeing the problem emotions. But as we counsel and talk to somebody, some of these questions start to, un, um, to reveal the idol that's at the heart of it. Um, so before we get to that, um, how, do, how does an idol work? It starts by promising happiness. What's, what are the terms? Um, what are the terms of of a gospel uh, acceptance? Let's let's start with a hopefully easy one for everybody here. What's the terms of gospel acceptance? Oh come on! Anybody know how do you how does God accept you in the gospel? Anybody want to say Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, grace through faith, right? What is your obligation there? Yeah. Belief is an instrument. You receive what Christ has already done. Idolatry works in saying, you will get the goods that I offer 
based on you serving me. So if it's control, then what? if that's your idol and you desire, um, you desire the... Um, to be freed of uncertainty. Um, you worry a lot. If that's your idol, if that's what you struggle with, how do you serve that idol? You start controlling more and more things. You start anything that gets out of your control, you try to dominate and bring. And, and when you can't physically control it, what do you do when you're apart from it? What, what happens when you don't have, you can't actively control something? You worry. Anxiety. Anxiety is like that invisible hand that comes out of your heart and tries to control something. But it's, it's foolish. It's not happening. And what happens when you fail um, and the idol doesn't bring the blessing? Do you say, oh, that idol is no longer good? No. You say, the idol says to you, you did not work hard enough. You see, the problem in idolatry is that is that cycle that says, you need to serve me, and then when it doesn't deliver, um, it was your fault. And so next time, get more control. Next time, cover your bases even before that. Um, look, when you counsel somebody in this situation, oftentimes if they're worried about anxiety, sometimes your counsel is going to be, well, you know what, you should have been more prepared. You should have gotten more control over everything. You should have, you know, or don't get yourself into situation. Those aren't going to solve the issue. The problem is that they have this heart that doesn't trust God. The heart, there's an an idol that needs to be dealt with. Um, all right. So, questions with that? I wanted to add something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like have to keep digging deeper and deeper to see the desires and sins. Um, and then there are going to be kind of intermediate sorts of fruits of like right. maybe it's the expressed loneliness or the behaviors to. Like, yeah. That is, that's exactly what this metaphor is trying to get to. Circumstances are going to be the heat, but the way you, you'll see the problem emotion is going to be you got thorns coming out. The way you see gospel response to it, that, that you're really starting to appropriate the gospel, is you'll start to see fruit. And um, so that, that's exactly, and down at the bottom is the roots, which is, is um, connectedness to the gospel. It's that's, Yep. Yep. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, Craig? Um, your reject, uh, your, your um, desire in cowardice is approval for other people. And so if you're constantly trying to get approval from another person, um, they are going to feel like you're, you're constantly in, their, in looking 
looking to them for something. Oh, respond to me, respond to me, respond to me, respond to me. Um, and that, that is going to be overwhelming to people. So I don't I don't think that the, they are different. I think insecurity is you could you could use the same term for that. This is this is probably getting things down to its simplest terms. But yeah, I think those are those are pretty common. Yeah, Reese. Yep. Yeah. Right. And I think, I mean, based off this, I think it's kind of what happened, and, you know, it's uh, Johnny took my toy. Yeah. And so then the next question is not, well, what you do, which is you hit Johnny, but it's, well, how that make you feel? It made you mad. So right. you're immediately getting behind what happened to getting to the heart of it. Yeah. And what did you do? I hit Johnny. And then you ask, well, what did you hope that would accomplish? And then right. Yeah, 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 no, it, yeah, 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 and so, so I, th- I think the, uh, maybe the big takeaway, if you heard all this stuff, I think there's a lot of things you've, you've maybe already connected with. The thing that I think often gets missed is that uh, so often in these situations we try to change the sun, you know, or we try to say the sun is bad. How do you get fruit? You don't get fruit without the sun. The answer isn't removing heat. What happens if you gospelly, uh, gospelly approaching? <laughs> what happens if you have a gospel heart in the approach to this stuff? Well, then you can see the heat not as the thing that's going to as the problem, but as the thing that's actually going to produce good fruit in your life. You can help somebody or yourself, start to say, you know, the thing that's killing those, um, driving me to this idolatry, that's the bad thing. If I just lived in a better world, in a world that I, somebody else was in charge of providence, maybe myself, rather than God, then I'd be producing fruit all over the place. But it's God's fault and his providence of things. No, God's in control. And if you're a Christian, then he's working these things for your good. And so when they come, you have to be under, able to understand this in a gospel way. And if you do that, fruit starts to begin. Yeah, Rico. Um, how do you look at some of this just more like for something that's new or unknown? Like if you're just starting out something new, I think it can be emotionally a little bit insecure. But once you start doing more of something, you can become more insecure. Uh, I mean, like not done something before, you could be nervous. You could be, you know, 
Right. Yep. Yep. And I think, look, I, 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 do, I think if it's getting to a level of counsel and bringing help into it, we're talking about a serious situation. And we're talking about a situation that – or a repetitive pattern. Every time somebody asks me to say something in public, I freeze up. Okay, there's a, there's a part of nervousness in that. But let's actually start to work through that, especially if you're called, if God is putting you in a position where you need to start doing that. Let's, let's start talking about some of these issues, getting to the heart of it. So, no, it's good. Yeah, Annie? I think it's interesting what you say about the son. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And look, there, there is sin in the world. Sin can affect us, and it's, and it's bad, but you're exactly right. Often the thing that's easiest to do is try to change the circumstances, change the furniture, um, but not change ourselves. And it's really until we get confronted with this um, that we can actually get good healing. Um, so in conversation, you know, somebody dealing with a relationship and talking about all the problems the other person has in, in that and uh, they never – they were so resistant to turning the corner of saying what they had. And it was like – you realize your idol is tearing you apart. And it, it seemed like it was the other person tearing them apart. But it's – no, it's your idol that's tearing you apart. The other thing is bad, but, um, but you have a responsibility for yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so there's there's two there's two parts of this, um, and when I talk and counsel people that struggle with pornography, especially, uh, I think you go to Proverbs in one sense. It's foolish to walk down the street of the the enticing woman. <laughs> you, don't walk down the street. You know you're gonna you're not strong enough to go down there. You're gonna get pulled in. So there's a there's a part of which somebody else who may not struggle with that can walk down that street. <laughs> But, um, but you should know for yourself that you cannot. Um, but if you only build walls around and protect yourself from uh, the, the times you might get tempted, you're setting yourself from a fall because there will be cracks in that wall always. And you have to address the heart because that idolatry will eke itself out in other ways too. So uh, both and. Let me, let me just uh, uh, put my foot on the gas a little bit uh, as we, we need to get through this. Um, a helpful um, in, in dealing with uh, counseling somebody in idolatry, it's, it's really good to focus on the S cycle. This is on page five. Um, it begins with understanding sin. And, 
And this is sometimes the counselor is able to expose the idol. Um, and everything we said earlier about idolatry is at this point to say, hey, look, this is, this is a problem. Servitude comes in when we say, and now you see how it's affecting your life. Um, and oftentimes, if you do have horrible repercussions of your idolatry, if you see the thorns of the anger and the stress and everything, hallelujah, that is good news because that is God putting you on your back. That is God um, showing you the ill effects of idolatry. The worst thing that could happen is that you don't have any effects of the idolatry and you go headlong into worshiping something that um, doesn't show you these warning things. But helping others through the midst of the oppression requires discernment, challenging them um, to let go of the things that enslave them. Sometimes religious idolatry can be the hardest um, if your idolatry is serving um, and, and the approval of others I mean, sometimes it is the hard conversation. Okay, you need to know the freedom of the gospel that you cannot show up at this time, however much is important, you know, to, to show up on occasion. I want to throw a bunch of qualifications in here, but I'm going to move on. Supplication, facing life apart from the idol can be terrifying. The unknown of relying on God can feel riskier than the security of trusting in an idol, even an oppressive one. So even though they might feel the oppression of an idol, which we all do, we've all felt that oppression, sometimes it can still feel uh, better than risky, the risky thing of trusting God. A spiritual leader needs to frame, help sometimes frame the worst-case scenario. Okay, you're really scared about giving up this idol? You're really scared of what it's like to rely on God? Let's go through the worst-case scenario. What will it look like? A, a wonderful example is what Jesus does in Matthew 6. Listen to how Jesus puts this uh, in the context of anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink. So he doesn't even mess around with, like, my job and my, all these other things you could be anxious with. He goes to, like, the, the staples of life. <laughs> um, and he, he says, uh, what, we, what you will put on, clothing, yeah. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's telling you to redefine your life. See it in godly categories. Be able to say, you know what, if you do wind up losing your job out of this, and if you do wind up in poverty, life is more than money. Life is more than food and clothing. Life is more than those things, an abundant life. You can, you can have a, a joy in your life and a satisfaction, a flourishing in your life, even in the worst-case scenario, what you're afraid to give up in those idols. So part of supplication is then call, crying out to God in the midst of it, but also mocking those idols at, at their weakness. And then finally, the salvation, um, clinging then to, um, to God, living out the gospel. Salvation comes by disabling our idolatry, which can feel like death. Uh, the Puritans would call it mortification, you know, putting to death our old man, our sin, um, but then vivification, coming to life again. The um, former elder of mine used to call it that each Christian is a living, dying tree. We're, we're simultaneously dying and coming alive at the same time. But that death really hurts. All right. Uh, sanctification. On the dance floor, sanctification can feel disorienting. Who here has ever said, I feel like I was more holy uh, the first year I was a Christian than I am now? Yeah. How many times have you felt like you're regressing, you're going backwards? You ever feel defeated about that? Yeah, Tim.
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it's huge. And it's necessary. It's every, you know, that's, that's exactly, I think I had that quote from Jesus in there somewhere um, about dying and living. It's in there. Um, number four. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whoever should lo- lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. Yada, yada. Um, it's horrible. Delete that. Um, but in the, yeah, in the context of sanctification, we could say, well, it's supposed to be this nice linear path where we're all improving in our Christian life. Um, on the dance floor, it's going to be confusing. But again, if we help people get back on the balcony, we can see what it looks like in reality. And I love this chart. It's so helpful. How, how many people have seen this chart before? Okay, several people have seen it. It's, to, I'm going to just show you how to work through this chart. Um, but it's in the experiential way you're going to feel as at the point of your conversion a growing awareness of your flesh and your sinfulness. Um, that is awareness. That's not actually what you're doing, but the awareness of it. You're going to start to see, oh, wow, you know what? I thought it was bad because I used to do such and such, you know. Um, but now the law is getting redefined, and I realize I'm far worse. It's, you know, the other thing goes hand in hand with it, a growing awareness of God's holiness. Wow, God's getting much bigger. I used to think he was just part of my religious life. I used to think he was just part of my prayer, my worship. But now I see he's, he's claiming things at work. He's claiming my family. He's, all this other stuff has to spill into my spiritual life. And all of a sudden, I'm realizing I'm much, i got sin all over the place. Now, if we just did this, these two arcs, uh, what happens? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to be depressed. You're going you're gonna to be crushed. I am a miserable worm. I'm horrible. You know, you'll, you'll, just, you'll just get into uh, a downward spiral. Gospel sanctification says, no, this gap, getting bigger, is good news. Because when I was a new Christian, Chris hates when I do this. Sorry, Chris. When I was a new Christian, the cross was this teeny tiny little thing that just saved me. I was really okay. But, you know, it just got the boop. You know, I just got the little, stuff a little boop right up there, and it helped. As I figure out where I really am and where God really is as it goes through time, we're like, whoa, the cross is amazing. God, Jesus saved me from that? Okay, yeah, he saved me from that. That was good. Oh, whoa. You know, and then <laughs> this needs to expand. Oh, and then when we get to heaven, oh, oh, I didn't know how awesome the cross is. Jesus, thank you. Repentance, godly repentance. That's why Luther says repentance has to be a daily thing because that's what life is. Never leads us to despair. Doesn't lead us to being crushed. Only leads us to glorifying Christ. That has to be the conclusion of every act of repentance is glorifying God. Now, I think that's amazing. I think it's awesome. I think that's the, the how Scripture talks about it. But it doesn't only talk about this. This has been a real common trend, I think, recently in talking about sanctification, gospel sanctification, going back to the cross, and then once you realize what Christ has done, 
then um, you glorify God in your salvation. What's missing about this in your daily battle with sin? Anybody want to take a stab at it? No, the cross, I mean, now, saying the cross is there. Hopefully the cross is there. You're forgiven. Let's just say you are completely forgiven. You understand your salvation. But in your daily struggle with sin, if all you have is your forgiveness. Yeah, Dan? Yeah, uh, Julie, and then I'll, and then I'll just... Yeah, exactly. Great. I'm glad I'm forgiven. But, and you could, you know, I think most of us aren't going to be that callous about it. Look, okay, so I don't really care about living life now because I'm forgiven. But I think most of us start to feel defeated and to say, in my daily battle with sin, I'm great. I'm, I'm glad I'm forgiven this. But, man, I'm just tired of falling into this thing. I'm tired of falling into the, the, the same sin all the time. Well, not only does... God sanctifies us by the gospel, but he also transforms us. Regeneration is what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about being born again. Theologians use the term regeneration. It's a fancy, same thing. It's the new life God offers. Yeah. Um, I kind of look at it in this way, too. It's just that I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that'll get you to, to the um, justification and the forgiveness. And that's great. And your assurance will then bring you out of thankfulness as you respond. But sometimes we can just say, well, OK, I'm glad that I'm legally justified, but nothing's really changed. And scripture wants to say, no, there has been a change. You have a new heart. Say you're struggling with the idolatry of, of pornography um, or anger or whatever you're struggling with. If you it is important for you to get gospel sanctification to say, yes, God still loves me even in the midst of this. But if you never realize that he's also giving you a new heart, then you'll say, my battle with this sin is also a prison, and I will be bound to always fall into it. So in the moments of great temptation, I'm not even going to fight because I know it's going to be a losing battle. But if you understand that God's also transforming you, this needs to be there, too. God has saved you from every sin. Don't lose that one. Have the assurance, but also saying, you know what? He has freed me from the bondage of sin, though the presence of sin still uh, is, is there. Those two things, bondage we're freed from, but the presence is always going to be there. But the fact that we're free from the bondage of it allows us to then say, yeah, okay, I can battle this stuff. God's starting to work a new heart in me. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And growing in our faith, growing in our, our, our love, being, being I mean, I, I include the, um, that, that's the old mortification and coming to life again. That's the old Westminster um, Confession 13. Yeah. And this chart really gets us to the, the covenant that we have that legal declaration of forgiveness. Yes. That's the participation. Good. Yeah, exactly. You're right on. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> 
sexually immoral, the, the liars, idolaters, you know, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. So for some of you, mm-hmm. but you've been watched. You've yeah. Been, you know, you've been cleansed if you are standing firm in the faith. You know, and so he basically says, like, you have been freed from sin, so now you need to live as if that's you believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You are, and he says in Romans 6, you are dead to sin. But then he, if he just stopped there, then Romans 6 would be three verses long. <laughs> but the fact is, they're still sinning. So they can be both dead to sin and still sinning. And so he has to go in and say, now live out what is true of you. Um, so again, these are tools. These are tools I want you guys to use as spiritual leaders to. Um, uh, to to engage people in as as you talk with them, um, helpful questions. Um, this is taken from an article. Again, I linked it to that site where there's 35 uh, get to the heart questions by David Pallison. Really excellent. Um, if you're in a, a situation where you want to talk to somebody um, in a discipleship relationship, you're getting to heart. What's what makes a person tick? Um, these are great questions to start to get to that level. Um, now, all right, so I'm going to transition from these broad topics of discipleship and counseling to more specific issues, okay? So um, I want to hit uh, the first one, making biblical decisions. And I am going to um, – so these are the issues we're going to cover very quick. I'm actually only going to refer to the last four, um, but I'm going to spend time in the top two. The, the last four are in handouts that you can – um, go through, and they're very self-explanatory. I don't think I need to guide you through them. But I do want to go through um, personal decisions and family systems. And we've already been exposed a little bit to the personal decisions one in our first um, lecture, session, whatever you want to call it, um, making biblical decisions. Now, as you disciple somebody, this is going to be your bread and butter. Is a lot of times issues of what does God want me to do come up? Um, how am I supposed to be faithful? What, what am I supposed to be even praying for? And I want to just go through some um, major uh, principles that are important. Um, actually, before that, um, number one, God has a plan. I can't tell you how I think this is, this is the most crucial I think Christians approach, there's a lot of, we're going to go through bad approaches to helping somebody discern this. Um, But increasingly, I think people are extremely secular in how we just think about the entire world. That's exactly right, Siri. (laughs) If you're really struggling to know what God wants for your life. (laughs) Uh, Just enormously... um, secular understanding that God is actually in charge, not just of the big things, but of the details of our life. Um, It's essential. Um, Secondly, people who do understand God is in charge of everything fall into two um, harmful errors. I'll call the first one serendipity. Anybody know what serendipity is? Good definition. Yeah, okay, so accidents happen that you just, you know, the, that oh, it must be God planning those things, 
right? And there's always the great serendipity Bible study. I can't remember the references, but, you know, it's like, oh, God, what do you want me to do in my life? Turn to the Bible. You know, okay, uh, Judas went and hung himself. Uh, go and do likewise. You know, <laughs> you're just, you're, you're always left with, with saying, okay, God, are you, are you trying to um, tell me something? This is, um, this is often the way we treat uh, God giving us information. God gives us clues to interpret. Open doors. I know, I know, I know we've all used that, right? God's opening a door. What are we saying about how God is communicating in these ways? How confident are you to make a decision based on those? I want to argue that it's very risky. Because your view of God is not exactly is not what we've talked about this morning, that God's speaking clearly through his scripture on how he wants you to live. But rather, your view of God is this mystery God who is uh, leaving these little Easter eggs. You know what an Easter egg is? On the, they're like hidden messages all throughout a movie or, or something. He's leaving these little clues. And if you can find all the little clues, you can know how to live your life. Or you can read the tea leaves on, on everything. Um, that's a really dangerous view of God because you, it's relying on God. It's, it's, it's God relying on you to be very clever in how, to, how you're viewing the world and picking up these little clues. Oh, you know, um, this, this particular job came open. I'm not really qualified for it, but it came open at the very time when I lost my job. And God must be in this, so uh, I, you know, I must apply to it. Now, look, the first thing I said, remember, was God is at work in all things, right? Yes. Um, But the interpretation of those things, we often presume upon ourselves that we can do in very dangerous ways. And I want to say God actually does communicate to us. And when he does, he wants us to know it, not to guess it. Any questions on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, it is superstition. It's superstition in Christian language. God is doing this thing. Um, it must be true. Yep, we're getting to the wisdom. That, that is the wisdom model we're, we're heading towards. But I think when you counsel and talk to somebody, very tempting to say, you know what, maybe God is in that, you know, because of these pieces, pull, pulling all the pieces together. And I think... There may be some biblical reasons and wisdom why we say this is the right thing, but it's dangerous to say God is giving us signs to move forward in a, in a particular thing because of the way we think he's revealed himself. Uh, the other harmful approach is direct communication. And I think we talked a little bit about this in the first session, but this idea that um, really we're going to wait until God specifically tells us to do something. Um, which will leave us really stagnant until this supernatural communication, either through a dream or through a, a revelation, comes to us. Um, aside from all the other reasons why we would say that um, God communicates through his word, not through those means, uh, it also leaves us to a very immature way of responding to life. Uh, the wisdom model um, focuses on the, the idea that God has a decretive will. He has his decrees I got this in here somewhere, I think. Yeah. Okay. So it, he, has, he has it, but it's also hidden. 
And it's hidden because it's toxic. Uh, if we were to know uh, the day of our death, if you were to know you died next week, you're going to le- live your life very differently, right? And maybe God doesn't want you to live differently. Maybe he wants and calls you to be faithful in what he's called you to do. So there's part of his plan for you he does not want you to know because it's too great for you. You don't know the whole thing, and you can't know the whole thing. Um, but what you do know is there's no plan B, that as he's working his decrees out, they are for your good, and they're for his glory. And that's a, that's a surety. That's a definite. But he also communicates his will through his precepts. These are his commands, saying, what is God's will for your life? You, you know him. What is his will for your life? Glorify him. Be holy. That's not enough. How's that going to tell me? How to... Yes, it is enough. It's trusting that it is enough. And that everything he gives you in his scripture is enough to build wisdom into you. Um, so that we can live godliness knowing that he has given us everything for life and, and godliness in his word. And so rather than praying to know what he will do. Because what happens when we, what is really behind saying, God, please Tell me which job to choose or tell me which person to date or tell me. Often what's behind, hiding behind that is a, an idol of control or a, wanting to escape uh, judgment. God, tell me this so I can be the right one so the blame gets off of me and the responsibility gets off of me and it gets on to you. If things work out poorly, God, it's your fault because you told me to do this. <laughs> Rather than – and God doesn't want us to be little tiny children taken by the hand in everything in life. He wants to grow us up as sons and daughters in the kingdom to make wise and godly decisions, very empowering and in the dignity that he has intended for us. And so as we guide people in decisions, we're not saying, you know, look for the tea leaves, look for the, the neon light, but grow in godliness. Grow in, in what are right motives. And, and even when motives are mixed and wrong, how do you move forward in it and, and still make a godly right decision? Um, once we understand God's word, we can tell prohibitions, things we definitely need to stay away from, things we're supposed to definitely do, and then Christian liberty, things in which we actually need to use wisdom and discernment about um, in guidance. There's a great book, um, Step by Step, by James Petty, that goes through a lot of that stuff. But also there's a, a much more detailed, about 20-page handout that, um, that goes, th- in, uh, goes through that as well. All right, I want to close on... Um, this idea of family systems. What we've talked about so far is a lot of individual counseling and individual discipleship. Um, but in terms of a family system, I think we need, to, um, uh, we need a little bit of more work on how they operate and, and um, how we can bring counsel into it. Every family system is constantly interacting in a way that chooses, reinforces, and tolerates certain beliefs. I can't remember who mentioned it earlier, but was talking about um, I was maybe talking about marriage and, and family issues that, that sometimes break down. It's not just dealing with your idolatry and your sins. Sometimes it's dealing with a whole system. And families are great because it's filled with sinners, right? <laughs> um, and so uh, the first thing I want to talk about is levels of interaction. Maybe not. Um, levels of interaction... Um, now, these, these are not mutually exclusive. Hopefully, they build and include each other. But at a very basic level, there's, a, there's some behavior control, meaning that there are some rules, um, and there's some benefit to them, reinforcement, and some negatives to it. 
Um, but if those are too rigid or not rigid enough, um, then we run into trouble, which is, moves us to the level of tolerance. Adaptable methods of control, these are creating new ways of responding when tested methods no longer work. Happens in every system of interaction. You figure out how the system works. There are loopholes, ways around it, that, that, or maybe time just changes things. And you need to learn how to adapt to it. And then ultimately, value modification. Changing the goal itself to be more compatible with the values. It's looking at a system, looking at a family interactions, and saying what needs to be in place for this to be a healthy system. A healthy family will operate on all four of those levels. We're at the bottom of page seven, moving to page eight. Um, Balancing individuality with mutuality. Um, And if you want a, uh, a real brief depiction of this could be ha- happening in, in um, families or just even couples, two unhealthy uh, systems. Um, one is enmeshed. This is a f- when family members lack a sense of separate identity, being overly dependent on the family for the identity or the other person for the identity. This will um, be evident when the whole family is devastated in one member's problems, that they're all enmeshed in the problem itself. And a member who tries to separate themselves from this enmeshment is going to be seen as disloyal and rejected. And so it's often difficult to break out of. So when you see this happening, um, it's great to identify it and we'll, we'll um, bring in a healthy response to it. But, but that's a, one key problem is enmeshment. The second one is disengagement, where the life of each member rarely touches uh, each other in meaningful ways. Um, Sometimes it's a reaction against other uh, experiences of enmeshment that they've had. I see this in marriage counseling a lot, especially early in marriage, where they, they uh, dive right into enmeshment or they haven't learned how to live together yet and they're, um, they're moving on separate tracks that, that hardly ever intersect. Um, and the idea of healthy differentiation means that um, we should, strong families have mutuality, involvement with each other, which is supportive but not intrusive. Um, sometimes the stage of life is going to dictate this. Obviously, kids can't be independent on themselves. They need some dependence there. But that's growing and progressing and hopefully leading towards uh, independence. Um, an adaptable family system goes, uh, has to be a, um, able to react to changing circumstances. It cannot be too chaotic. There has to be some definition, some rules but it can also be too rigid. Um, some of this can be common sense, but I think seeing it in a family context, especially just hearing one side of it, will limit how you counsel. You need to be able to, to bring some of these assessments of what, um, how the system is operating. Healthy families need to be adaptable, flexible yet stable. They also communicate well, which involves both perception, how people hear it, but also how you communicate it. Um, when you see a breakdown in this area, um, you, need, you realize the, the system is going to um, not be able to, to be healthy. Um, and in leadership, especially as we think about children, there are stages to this. There's development from telling to teaching to including them in participation to then finally delegating. That happens in leadership in general, but you think about that in, in healthy um, raising children. If you have... Um, Teenage children, older children, and you're just still teaching them but not including them in um, 
in the family and the responsibilities, it's going to stunt their growth, and it's going to be an unhealthy um, codependency that's, that's going to develop. Um, what type of control? I th- you know, you have the three paradigms again, authoritarian, permissive, um, and authoritative. And then um, finally, just some, some wisdom. I know that this was really breezed through quickly as we're trying to finish on time, but, um, but uh, wisdom for guidance here. Know yourself and the issues you're facing both privately and organizationally. Work at letting the social, not letting the social system be about you, um, so not taking it personally. Don't react. Try to take a step back, get the big picture. Remember the balcony metaphor. And if necessary, minimize even if temporarily, a person's ability to create dysfunction in a social system, even if by marginalizing them at points um, of greatest temptation. And so sometimes it's seeing a, an enmeshed system or a system where there's high dysfunctionality with one person and uh, being able to marginalize them in a sense to, um, to, for the health of the whole system. And I've seen that happen in, in several situations where Though it's difficult and hard, it does allow for the health of the whole system, um, so the survival of it. All right. We're a little past time, but do you guys have questions? Yeah, Lisa? Step, uh, step by step. Uh, James Petty. Uh, Gospel in Life. Tim Keller. It, it can be found on the web. It's it's that chart is on is in your resources um, and on the website. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. Oh, this the content of this stuff is there, but I'll put the PowerPoint on. Yeah. Yeah. Along those lines, one other slight little um, addition of these things are great resources for us to help our folks. Right. That chart, the heat chart with the sun, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just for everybody's awareness, and you know this, but that, that comes from Jeremiah 17, mm. 5 through 10. So therefore, you can you, you don't just have to talk about it as a principle with people. You can take it to that passage mm. and show how that passage creates that great diagram. Yeah. That's just a great resource. Jeremiah 17. Yeah, and I, I would say it goes, uh, um, the concept of tree and, and fruit and rudeness um, has a rich biblical tradition. You know, Psalm 1, you know, you think of uh, Jesus as the vine. All, you know, all of these sort of metaphors that come out. So it's, it's, it's all over the place. But I think, so I think, yeah, thank you.